Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. All right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT-704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. I have a simple question as it relates to now the $20 million that the Hunter Biden uh, uh, influence peddling operation took in from uh, at least five different sources going back to 2014 and 2015 when his father was vice president. The money comes in and then Joe has meetings coincidentally, with the people that gave his son the money at a time when everybody thinks Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president and Joe Biden is going to be going into retirement. So this was laying the foundation for the future of the the Biden Global Initiative, let's call it. So if the talking point reaction, the response from the White House and Joe yesterday to Peter Ducey is that he never talked business with anybody, ever, Never. They just like there are things he doesn't talk about and business top of the list. I don't talk business with anybody. That's what he said to to Ducey yesterday. Okay. well, then why are you going to Cafe Milano with Burisma's CEO? Why would you do that? He's just a friend of Hunter Biden. No, it's his business associate. They put him on the board. They gave him like three million dollars. Right. This deal with. Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, they got about $3.3 million from Burisma into their Rosemont Seneca Bohai account. There are a number, by the way, there are like a bunch of these LLCs that are named Rosemont Seneca, like Rosemont Seneca Thornton, Rose, they got a whole bunch of different permutations off of this name. And that, of course, is also designed to obfuscate and confuse and, you know, get get people off the trail, off the scent. So they see something as like, oh, it's, uh, oh, it's RSA. Oh, that's, I don't know what that is. That's not, oh, no, no, it's Rosemont Seneca A something, right? He had all these different accounts with different permutations of these words. And others, by the way. Other names, too. But Rosemont Seneca keeps coming up. Why are you going to Cafe Milano, which, by the way, promotes itself as where the world's most powerful people go? Right there on its website. And by the way, you go to the website, they got a whole section of photos of all these powerful people. Performing artists, like I think Lenny Kravitz was in there. Ivanka Trump is there with the Stanley Cup with some hockey player, I assume. I didn't see any pictures of Joe or Hunter. Wonder why. Why are you always going to Cafe Milano? Because the brand of Cafe Milano is where the world's most powerful people go. It's the place to see and be seen. It's a gathering place for Washington's most glamorous set. And so if you want to show your business associates the kind of juice that you have, because you darn sure don't have any kind of expertise in Ukrainian energy companies or the industry, you bring them to Cafe Milano, where I'm sure it's very difficult to get a table, 
But if you're the son of the vice president, I bet it's a lot easier, especially if you got dad with you. What are you talking about at dinner? How can you sit at the dinner table? Let's assume, let's just assume Hunter Biden is a whiz kid when it comes to Ukrainian energy. Okay, so that's why they stuck him on the board, along with Devin Archer, who who, let's just for the sake of this uh, example, uh, we'll assume also is a leading Ukrainian energy industry expert, too. They just so happen to have started this firm, Rosemont Seneca, fill in the blank. And uh, uh, that's why they got put on the board. And it had nothing to do with the vice president. Okay, but you go to dinner with these guys. What are you talking about? What do you think comes up? Hunter Biden being the expert and board member with Burisma and the CEO of Burisma, the board, one of the board of directors member also on at the dinner, right? Like, what are you talking about? Do you think, do you think Ukraine or energy or gas or politics, do you think any of this comes up at the dinner? If it doesn't, then what the hell are you even there for? You just want to meet some interesting person? What is this guy, Vadim Pozarsky? Let me guess. He's an artist, too. You guys are going to swap, like, artistic techniques. But again, then what the hell is Joe doing there? He's not an artist. As far as I know, like, he didn't start painting, you know, portraits of his dog like uh, W did. He's not painting boxes of Ritz crackers. So what? It would not surprise me, actually, if he did start doing that. But I digress. Why are you going to the dinner with Burisma if you're not talking business? The only connection that Hunter and Burisma have is a business connection. Why are you at that dinner? At the most exclusive place where the world's most powerful people go to dine. And it's not just Burisma. You also went there with the Kazakh oligarch. You also went there with the widow of the Moscow mayor who also funneled millions of dollars to your son. And this is the same place that you keep going? Oh, uh, it's just, it's convenient. I guess that's it. It's just down the street. Can you imagine the entourage (laughs) that he brings with him for this event, right? For this meeting? And you're not talking business. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it, nor should you. Uh, Let me go over here and get some... uh, Get some of the messages here from the mail sack. This is from Mark. Pete, the White House saying Republicans have no proof of Joe Biden taking money is the Bart Simpson defense. I didn't do it. Nobody saw me do it. You can't prove anything. Or like, uh, uh, well, that's no, that's the Homer Simpson defense. I didn't do it. It was like that when I got here. (laughs) But that's it. I didn't do it. Nobody saw me do it. You can't prove anything. The White House also, the White House PR flax claiming that Joe is working to fix the economy reminds me of the late Walter E. Williams regarding a similar GovCo economic claim that if your house was on fire, would you call the arsonist that set the blaze to come help put it out? Precisely. He then says, keep on rocking it, Mr. Number One. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, appreciate it. Let's see. This is from Steve. Um, subject... Really? <laughs> and the message says, what is the what is the media says the Republicans can't prove Joe Biden did anything wrong? All I want to, I guess, when the media says the Republicans can't prove Joe Biden did anything wrong, all I want to hear the Republicans respond with is, hold my beer. Yeah, I, like, 
really. And and maybe there's a long game going on here. Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart was a master at this. James O'Keefe does it as well, which is you put the first story out and you let everybody respond to that story and, and stake their positions out on that, knowing that you've got the follow-up that proved like, you, so you got to think ahead, right? You say, okay, we have all of this evidence. We have the allegation and then we have these pieces of evidence. So let's make the allegation first and let them deny it. And then you present a piece of evidence knowing that there's corroborating evidence as well. So then after they pivot to then try to dispute the evidence that you've presented saying it doesn't prove this thing. You like you get everybody on the record there, and then you come out with the next piece of evidence that blows up their uh, uh, their excuses. That's the And maybe that's what they're doing. I'd like to think that's what they're doing, but I might be overestimating the GOP just a little bit. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. We're going to find out, I guess. Maybe. Um, John says, Pete, uh, a correct or a pronunciation correction for you, he says. Um, it is spelled Bidenomics, but it is actually pronounced Bidenflation. Ah, okay. my bad. That is my bad. I apologize. Andrew McCarthy over at NationalReview.com. He says a lot of people are looking at the uh, the number twenty million dollars in this latest revelation. That's the total, more than $20 million. That's a big number that, that, that got funneled uh, to the, uh, the Biden family. He says, but if you're like me, a former prosecutor, the numbers that drop your jaw are 2014 and 2015. It's not the 20 million. It's the dates, right? 2014, you got the Russian oligarch transferring the money in February 2014. April, May 2014, that's when uh, Hunter and uh, Devin Archer get put on the board of Burisma. April 2014, that's when the Kazakhstani oligarch wires the money for the, the sports car for Hunter Biden. All right, 2014. Why are the dates more significant to McCarthy than the dollar amounts? The federal statute of limitations for relevant tax crimes is six years. The federal statute of limitations for other relevant crimes, five years. So that would put it at around 2020, 2019, 2020 timeframe. And what stops the statute of limitations from continuing to run until potential criminal charges lapse? What stops that? The filing of an indictment. That's what stops it. The Justice Department has never filed an indictment in the Biden, quote unquote, case. That's why he puts quotes around this term, the Biden case. Is it a case? If it was, we should have seen something happen after Hunter Biden's collusive agreement, the plea agreement, when that fell apart, something should have happened immediately afterwards that did not happen. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's Military Surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will 
consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. Got a message here from Russ. He says, Pete, I see two possible logical explanations For the Biden calls and dinners, not that media and politicians are known for logic, but number one could be Biden was absolutely part of the business and is indeed a corrupt liar. Or number two, for several years, Biden has been so mentally checked out that they could put him on phone calls and take him to dinner and he had no idea where he was or what he was doing. I kind of think it's both. (laughs) says Russ. Yeah, maybe a little from column A and a little from column B. Well, see, and I would agree with you if this stuff was happening now. But this is 2014, 2015 time frame. That's 10 years ago. Biden was way sharper. I mean, relatively speaking, it's still Joe Biden, but he was way sharper. He was like he I don't think he was as mentally um, deteriorated then as he is now, because I've seen like a really pronounced deterioration over the last four years. Um, which, by the way, I think that's why they put him on the beach all the time, because they can't put him on a bicycle anymore. They can't have him walk around stairs, you know. So now it's like they put him on a beach because if they just put him someplace else, people might think he's just like, you know, not doing anything and not doing his job. But if he's at the beach, it's like, oh, well, you know, he's just at the beach with his family. Where he's like, you know, getting into a wrestling match with a with a beach chair. But um, no, I think, yeah, I, I think the reason why it looks so bad and it looks like, you know, he was part of an influence peddling operation. The logical explanation is that he was. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, yeah, uh, that, that's the reason it looks like this. And we know the details because his son left the laptop at the computer repair store. And had he not done that, none of this would have come out, right? We would not have known about all of the money transfers going around. We would not have known this. But now we can track the money. Um, Andy McCarthy, he says the timeline is critical here because the Justice Department opened what it pretends to be as the Hunter Biden case. They did that in 2018, Okay. By 2019, it was obvious that there were significant tax felonies as well as the firearms felony. If there had been an actual investigation of the kind, say, that like Robert Mueller did or the Democrats did of Paul Manafort, whose wrongdoing is similar to that in which the Bidens appear to have engaged, right? There might well also be grounds for money laundering and and FARA violations. But with Biden, no, no, they're letting the clock run. That's the point, McCarthy says. Charges based on suspected criminal conduct prior to 2016 and maybe even prior to 2017 or 18 in some cases are already time barred. They're off limits. Statute of limitations is over. That's because the Biden DOJ refuses to indict. And here's the thing. Right. When when uh, they did the deal with Hunter Biden two weeks ago, whatever. The most astonishing aspect of the recent testimony of the IRS whistleblower agents was that in the interests of striking a global sweetheart plea deal that would cover Hunter Biden for all years and all conceivable crimes, his lawyers were ready to waive 
statute of limitations objections. They were willing to say, yeah, let it. All right. We don't we don't care about any statute of limitations. We're getting the sweetheart deal. Just blanket immunity, basically, for everything, for all time. The prosecutors did not accept that offer. The, The DOJ didn't take it. They chose to allow the charges involving the most serious corruption evidence, Burisma 2014-2015, they allowed that to expire. All that Attorney General Merrick Garland's prosecutors needed to do to prevent that from happening was to indict, and they didn't do it. And when the deal fell apart, usually the prosecution would then turn around and say, okay, well, the deal's off, indict. But they didn't. They still haven't. Why not? Why not? That's what normal prosecutors would do. When you have a deal, you're like, all right, we're not going to indict you. You got this deal. But then the deal falls apart. Then you go ahead and issue the indictments. You go ahead and put the charges up. You could still negotiate. You can still then enter another collusive plea agreement if you would like to do so. But you indict because you've got the case and you don't want the time to run out. Unless, of course, you're not really interested in, quote unquote, the case. There's no indictment. Because there is no case being pursued. That's all. Let's go over to the phone lines here and get Bob on. Hello, Bob. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, Pete. I'm on my walk and I'm a little winded, so please pardon that. That's all right. I just wanted to make the case that if these continuing revelations about Joe Biden don't demonstrate that we are two different countries living on the same soil... Uh, nothing does. You can bring all of this information to half of the half of the country's population, and they'll just shrug it off and say, "Well, what about Trump? He, he he's been indicted three times. He was impeached twice. That's mm-hmm. your guy." And it goes on and on. And there is not a national news outlet in the country that can say that both sides trust their reporting. Not a single one. No, well, because... I'd love to have a link because I'd read it. Well, right. That's why I try to read, and I've said this for years, ever since, I mean, 20 years now since, uh, or plus, since I've been in the business, which is uh, get your news from multiple sources. Because for that very reason, you know, especially nowadays, you've got more and more uh, uh, micro-targeting, Right towards certain uh, audiences, and there are a lot of people. You see it happening with Fox News as well. They're hemorrhaging audience right now uh, because people want what they want, and if you don't give it to them, they'll go someplace else. And so it becomes very easy to make your content you to tailor it to what your audience wants. I get that. I mean, I'm in this business. I understand that component of it. But um, you know, it's also it's. It's very easy to, like, for example, here, it's very easy for me to make every single show about Donald Trump, pro or con, right? I could I could do that, and a lot of people do that, and it gets some ratings. I don't feel like I want my show to be dictated by a single person or a single website. A lot of people will go to certain websites and do their show content off of, you know, one website that basically sets the tone for a lot of, I mean, this is the same thing in uh, legacy media, New York Times, L.A. Times, right? They, uh, Washington Post. They set the agenda for so many of the news organizations, and I—I I don't know. I'm a contrarian, I guess. I—I don't want—I don't want all of that. Like I want I, I want more sources so I can see what is news to different people with different mindsets. 
Yes, and that and that's good for you, and that's good for me. And mm. I wish everybody did that, and I wish no one had to do that. You mentioned Fox News losing audience, and today on the Drudge Report, he is gloating about Fox's stock price being higher than ever, quote unquote, post Tucker. Mm. And that was, I mean, that was the whole point. It's not in in spite of that. That's the reason they did it, because the, the, the reason for firing Tucker was not to gain audience. It was to increase ESG score. And ESG is incongruent with audience. They'll find that out soon enough. Yeah, it was a, more of a business decision for the shareholders, uh, because now maybe people aren't so uh, concerned about having their ads appear on uh, Fox and then risking, you know, boycotts and attacks and stuff from the left. Um, yeah, I, right. yeah. Here's something else, though. Are, you know, Matt, what are they going to do? What are they going to do when there's no audience? Are they going to say, "Yeah, but look at our ESG score. I'm going to pay for 30 seconds now." No, it's a fair point. Um, I would also point out, you know, Matt Drudge doesn't run the Drudge Report anymore. Not surprised. Yeah, he he got out. Um, year, a couple of year, years ago, actually. I think it was around 2016 or something. I forget who's now in charge of it. I was actually talking with uh, Brett Winterbull about this very thing yesterday. And I am one, I never have used, even when Matt Drudge was still doing it, I never used the Drudge Report as a source. I still don't. I don't, because, I mean, I understand the value of it. It's an aggregation website. You know, it just takes headlines from all over the place. But that's one that's one side of it. And when you turn over your uh, your show to, you know, only doing stories off of that site, then, like, why not just have the Drudge radio show, you know? Right. So, I uh, uh, was talking to a couple of my friends in Rome just before the election, uh, the presidential election, and they were giving me a hard time about being pro-Trump, and I said... I said, well, let me ask you a question. What do you think about what Tony Bob- Bobolinsky is saying? Mm-hmm. And they said, who's that? Yeah. And, and you know, if we had a, a, a national news outlet or two or three, I think people would enjoy it and would gravitate to it if it were like strictly news. I, I took, and I'm old now, but I took journalism in high school and nobody that I watch or read could get a passing grade, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not. I would see, I would be more interested in, or just as interested, I would say, um, if, if they, if you had a cable news station or whatever that, that, that brought on conservatives and progressives and, uh, you know, and, and gave large, uh, latitude, a lot of sweeping latitude to let them bring, different ideas of what news stories to cover, and then allowed them to actually flesh the things out rather than what we usually have is, you know, a five or six minute segment, uh, one person uh, from the left or right, you know, and then they kind of, they, they, they make their talking points and then they, they shuffle them off stage. And then they bring on a couple other panelists. They talk to them for five or six minutes and usually about the same topic, but it's just, it's like a constant rotation of guests and you never actually get any sustenance, no meat on the bone, so to speak on these issues. You just get this very surface level, uh, you know, the sugar rush from, you know, talking point, I hate you and your guy stinks. And all right, now we go to commercial break. 
I want to. I, I want to see the debate. I want to see the discussion about the uh, you know in depth on the issues. That's why some of these long form podcasts are doing so well. Yeah, is that they 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 actually have meaningful discussions. Uh, and as far as the, these uh, these news stations, I, I wish they'd do away with practically all of the pundits and just stick with the news. And I understand that the stories that you choose to report on is part of the slant. You know, right. you can you can give honest, unslanted news about everything, but if some of them you just say, we're not going to report on this, slanted or not, mm-hmm. then, that, then that is a bias in and of itself. Right. It's, yeah, the bias manifests not just in the way you do the stories, but in which stories you do and which stories you don't. Absolutely. I got an A in journalism. There you go, I Bob. I don't charge anything. <laughs> this is all free. All right, buddy. I appreciate it, Bob. Enjoy the rest of your walk, sir. I appreciate it. All right, more on that in a minute. First, let me tell you, the Heritage Life Skills event was fantastic. Every year, Bill and Jan Sturette organize the event to help people get educated on how to be prepared for anything. The Sturettes own Carolina Readiness Supply, 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials you'll need for any kind of emergency. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies, because being prepared is just smart. The Heritage Life Skills event brings educators and vendors from all over to help people do just that. I was honored to be able to be a small part of it. And whether you're an experienced prepper, have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at CarolinaReadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? If you would like to send a message, you can do it via the Twitter machine, at Pete Callender. I got this one here. It says, Pete, your show today is right on concerning the selling out of our country by the Biden, uh, by the Bidens, and uh, particularly the transfers of all these millions of dollars from Russia, Ukraine, China, and others, all to buy every decision that they needed to benefit their interest. Uh, thank you. That's from Dad. And this is from MAGA, American Pitbull. Says uh, on 710 WOR NYC Radio this morning, Jonathan Carl, the ABC News chief Washington correspondent, was asked by the co-host about these $20 million uh, payments to Hunter Biden. Jonathan Carl said he had not heard about it. Seriously? See, like that's, it's amazing, but it's not surprising. I have encountered this time and time again. I've seen similar types of like head scratcher moments. I like I think something like this happened with George Stephanopoulos. I think he was on one of the programs here on WBT and somebody said, "Hey, what's up with this?" And he's like, "Oh, I haven't heard about that." "Oh, hey, would, would you mind asking about it during one of the debates?" And I think he did. So on the one hand, I know that not everybody, especially these TV guys, just like they're not, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, okay, I don't want to disparage people, but like all I'm going to say is uh, that some of these anchors are there because they look good, um, not necessarily, and I'm not saying that about Stephanopoulos. I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't look, okay, never mind. All I'm saying is that I think there are a lot of people that get into these positions that don't have fantastic critical thinking skills, and they're not exactly well-versed in a lot of different topics, and it's difficult. I know this, look. When I, in, um, what was it, 2011, when I got let go 
hear from this previous corporate ownership, and they came in and they fired a whole bunch of people, and I was one of them. And I spent about six months before I got back uh, into media. Well, hang on a second. Uh, Sorry, no, three months. And I went over to work for what is now Spectrum News. About three months, and I go over there. I work there for about six months. And then I get back into radio up in Asheville, okay? And in that time period, when I was unemployed, looking for work, and then at a job, but doing TV work, and I am just, you know, chasing the story of the day. I was kind of general assignment. I would cover the school board meetings. But for the most part, it was car crashes and apartment fires, right? So I can tell you when I got back to talk radio and started doing the afternoon show, it was it was a lot to catch back up. It really was because uh, I was, you know, I didn't have a podcast. I didn't, I was, there was nothing like that at the time. Well, I shouldn't say that they were around, but it was the barrier to entry was pretty steep. It was expensive and not a lot of people were doing it. I probably should have done it then, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have a big audience. I had only been a talk host for like two years at that point. So I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so I end up at, in Asheville and I'm trying to play catch up. And I realized like over the course of that first year, I realized how much I had lost track of, because if you're not doing this every single day, it is very easy to lose track of the stories and then to come back in and pick back up. You know, I got to backfill a lot of that stuff. And it was an election season, too. It was 2020. So that's not to excuse Jonathan Carl, because of all people, Jonathan Carl, the White House correspondent, he should have some knowledge of these stories. My God. What are you doing? Are you not having regular communications with whoever your Capitol Hill reporter is? Like who's covering the congressional beats for ABC? Why would you not be sharing this, this information? What You should be getting info from, again, as many sources as possible. All right. So back to this Andy McCarthy piece at National Review, which, by the way, like a lot of people in Trump world, they don't like National Review. So this would be a safe source for your left of center media people like Jonathan Carl. This is a source that you that he should be reading. And if he's reading it, he would see these types of stories and analyses. Okay, so Annie McCarthy says it's been two weeks since the July 26th implosion of Hunter Biden's plea bargain in Delaware U.S. District Court. There's been no indictment in a normal investigation in which Hunter's crimes were well known for years before he agreed to the guilty plea. There would already have been an indictment before the plea to make sure that the charges get preserved. Once the plea deal collapsed, because the judge asked a couple of questions, the next step for any competent prosecutor would be obvious. Get to the grand jury and indict the case. That wouldn't uh, it wouldn't prevent the government from offering Hunter yet another appalling plea agreement, but it would make sure that whatever charges could be brought were still viable. But of course, there's still no indictment for two reasons. First, the Biden Justice Department is trying to make the case disappear, banking on the fact that the media won't report that the lack of an indictment means the charges continue to be lost to the passage of time. Second, if prosecutors outline the charges the way the Justice Department customarily does in high-profile cases, like, for example, the way Jack Smith 
has outlined the charges in the three indictments of Trump, right? It would be politically untenable for the president's Justice Department to give the president's son a plea deal to these two puny misdemeanor tax charges in exchange for a full immunity uh, deal and no jail time. That's why they're not doing it. The Biden Justice Department pretends it's an ongoing investigation, but it's not really. It's a black hole. It's a paper artifice that enables Garland and his subordinates to tell Congress and the few journalists who ask a couple questions that they can't provide any answers or documents because that could compromise their ongoing investigation. You know, one of those remarkable investigations that stumbles on crime after crime after crime, but somehow never results in the filing of any charges. It's a brain buster, I'll tell you what. We may never know the reasons why. By the way, here's the other part. The Justice Department, if it was actually conducting an investigation, they would never have allowed Devin Archer to testify before Congress. Never. But they did. So what does that tell you about their case? (laughs) 